New Testament reading is from Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come now and we bow our hearts before you. And we ask that you would not only speak your words, but you would use these words to shape us. So that we as your people might become a faithful witness for Christ here in the city we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight I have uh, the privilege and the task of wrapping things up timely so that we can go watch a game that is apparently going to be played in about an hour or so. So here we go. I'm a big David Brooks fan. And um, recently I uh, got a chance to read his book, The Second Mountain, where he describes life as uh, a pursuit of two mountains. The first mountain, he goes on to say, is shaped largely by cultural values and expectations and really is the mountain of success, recognition, achievement, and personal happiness. It's measured by things like a, a nice home, family, friendship, independence, security, and career. But he goes on to say that some people get to the top of that first mountain, taste success, and realize it's unsatisfying. At this point, some people realize that the first mountain is not their mountain. They look for a different mountain, one that is completely different other than the first one. And it's less about acquiring, it's more about giving, more, it's less about doing and more about responding to a call. He goes on to say, you don't climb the second mountain the way you climb the first mountain. You conquer your first mountain. You identify the summit. You claw your way to it. But with the second mountain, you are conquered by it. You do everything to answer the call and address the problem or injustice that is in front of you. And Brooks goes on to give life examples of some of the people that have done this. And uh, one couple in particular uh, is Kathy and David, who used to live in Washington, D.C. Their son, Santi, had a friend who sometimes uh, went to bed hungry. And so Santi invited him over for dinners at his house. And what started out as a meal together evolved into a community, dare I say, a new family. Brooks, a guest himself, writes about these Thursday night dinners that fed a deeper hunger. The dinner table became a key technology of social intimacy that brought together people of different race, class, and generations and gave them a new home. Kathy and David have several titles that highlight their hard work and profession up until now but they're most proud to be called mom and dad by dozens of local teenagers here in Washington, D.C. If David Brooks' description of the second mountain sounds familiar, because it should, he is talking about the kingdom of God, the call of the gospel, 
to step outside of our own lives and to engage in something much bigger than just me, myself, and I. To work hard in this call to bring what is good, true, and right in a city that is broken and badly in need of Christ. And as we continue our series, Jesus Talks Family, tonight we want to talk about a new family and what that means for us as individuals and us as a congregation. And we're going to do that by looking at two things. First, let's talk about family ties. In verse 46, it says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak with him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. Now, you have to understand, Jesus' mother and brothers are concerned. In fact, they're more than concerned. They're actually embarrassed uh, because of the recent rumors about Jesus. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 21, we read these words. And when his family heard of it, they went to seize him. Not just to ask politely, like, hey, can you calm that down? No, they went to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. And here they are, Matthew 12, standing outside, and they can't even go inside. They nudge someone like, hey, can you do us a favor and go get that guy? Don't ask about who we are and our affiliation with him. Just go get him. Because they don't want to make things worse than they already are. And at this point of narrative, the crowd expects Jesus to call a timeout, excuse himself to speak with his mother and brothers, because that's a culturally sensible thing to do. But instead, he calls an audible, and he says, starting with verse 48, who is my brother and who, uh, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. A lot gets lost in translation here. We live in an individualistic society where I comes before we. The way we identify ourselves, the way we understand our role in our community, all of these things are shaped by the cultural understanding of me. Now, Jesus understands the collectivistic culture better than anybody else. And he understands that in ancient Near East, family plays an important role. Family is not only where you belong, but it is part of your core identity. Remember what people said of Jesus? Isn't this Mary's son? Aren't his brothers with us? It is likely your career. Jesus was a carpenter just like his father Joseph was. You have your responsibility, strong sense of responsibility to one another in the family. In fact, Jesus on the cross would take his time to say, Mary, here is your son. John, here is your mother. Yet here Jesus seizes this opportunity to teach about a new family, one that is more important than even one's immediate family. And this is a radical thought. This family, Jesus goes on to say, is not defined by personal relationships, but is defined by one's faith in God. Verse 50, for whoever does the will of my father, more on this later, is my brother and sister and mother. This idea that our identity is not what we do, but what he has done for us is nothing new in the Christian gospel. 
we often think that we are what we do, what we have accomplished, where we belong. But the Bible says that we are not our degree, that we are not our career, that we are not our relationship status, that we are not even how clean our house is. In fact, we're not even our struggle, our failure, our sin, but rather we are his beloved. Called from the kingdom of death and darkness into life and light and adopted as sons and daughters of God. And here in the reflection quote in the bulletin for you, I think, there you go. It's all about adoption. Being his children with full access and privilege. Forgiveness is not the end. It's a means to an end. Adoption. To be included. To be a part of God's family. And as a family of God, we are called then to maintain this unity that Christ prayed for in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. You see, Washington draws a tight circle around people who share similar beliefs, interests, philosophies, and so on. But the church, no, not us. If anything, we draw a very large circle. And we seek to bring in people to include. That's what the gospel is, right? That God in Christ reaches out to us to befriend us. And that is what we are called to do as a church. We're here not only for ourselves. We're here for those who are not yet here. We're called to love and care for those in the church. Absolutely. That we are to carry one another's burdens, as Paul says in Galatians. But we have a duty to this city, which is to engage it, even at great cost to ourselves. That we would inconvenience ourselves in order to love this city well. And we're prone to think, yes, we ought to include everyone as long as they are like me. But that's not what the church is. I'm glad the church is not like me. And I'm glad the church is not like you either. The fact that the church is diverse and different is something to be celebrated. My children are very different. If you spend any time with my kids, you know how different my kids are. And I love them for that. The fact that the oldest is a brainiac, can be cold, calculated, <laughs> whereas her sister is the complete opposite. <laughs> in that she is warm and caring. <laughs> Let me finish here. Equally smart and gifted, but just warm and caring. She's the first one to greet me at the door. Well, sometimes a dog, but, you know, when you don't count the dog, then it's her. <laughs> and I love that. And I love my kids for that. And I think when God looks at us in all our diversity, I think God loves that too. Because our personalities reflect different aspects of God. And we need everyone. All hands on deck as we seek to be in and for the city as a family of God. So how does Jesus' teaching on the family of God inform you to be different? Maybe think differently, to do more, maybe sacrifice more, to give more as you seek 
the unity of the Spirit in the church, but also to continue the work that he has given us here in the city. Second, family work. Verse 48, he replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus. He is not saying that we don't get in the family by work and we remain in it by good work. No. He's talking about an important thing here, which is the work that we're all called to do, the family business, family work. You see, there's a strong correlation between grace and work. And we all know this. Grace does not negate work. Grace that saves us does not simply call us then to do nothing. No, it actually calls us to work. In fact, grace fuels our work. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And he elevates grace in ways that are right. There is no way we can get in the family of God by our good works. It is only by the grace of God. Because we were dead in our sin and trespasses. And it's only by grace that God would reach out to us and lift us up from our grave to bring us into the family of God. It is only by grace. But then he goes on to say in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is a reason why Ephesians 2, 1 through 9 comes before verse 10, and for a good reason. Because only when we understand grace can the call to work become our joy. If you skip 1 through 9 and you hunker down in verse 10, okay, what more do I have to do? You're missing the point. You're going to exhaust yourself. And like the two sons in the parable of the prodigal son, you're either going to run away or you're going to resent dad for it. The only way we can commit ourselves for the long haul as people called to live out the work of grace is by understanding grace and understanding it well. That certainly does not mean that we don't do anything, as I said, but it fuels what we do. I would say one of the best ways that we can actually love one another in the city is through the works of grace. In our house, we have a sheet of paper. It is a very powerful piece of paper, one that our children bow their knees before. It's called a chore sheet. On it, we have a list of our kids' names and all their responsibilities. And all we have to do when Daniel does not straighten out the shoes or James doesn't do the dishes, is to point to that piece of paper in the kitchen to say, look, chore sheet. And when they do their chores the way they're supposed to, it's not only fulfilling their obligation, but it's their way of loving the family. Setting up shoes might not be that big of a deal, but it is when you consider the bigger picture of how we can use our talents to love and care for those in the family. And straighten shoes every morning is a reminder that someone cares enough to do those things. Empty sink 
is a reminder that someone who hates doing dishes is willing to do that work because he loves and cares for the family. You see, you and I, we're saved by grace, but we're also sent back into the world to demonstrate who God is. Our time on earth is not just waiting for the promised glory. No, it's a stage where we can live out the glory of grace in ways that the world can watch, see, learn, and fall in love with God who cares deeply for them. And this is the vision of Isaiah 49, the Old Testament reading that was given to us. God, from the very beginning, desired that nations would come to know him. It is too small of a thing, he says, for me to restore Israel only. My heart is set on the nations. And how does that get played out here in the city today? It's through us. Through small, ordinary, often overlooked, insignificant acts of love done by church and faith and obedience. But there is one work more important than everything we just talked about. And we'll wrap up with this. What is this work? more important than the work of grace that was prepared in advance for us. In order for us to understand this, we got to pull back a little bit and understand Matthew chapter 12 in light of a bigger context. Matthew, Matthew 12 picks up where Matthew 11 left off, okay? And in chapter 11, 25, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and reveal them to little children. We see then this work itself out in Matthew chapter 12, where the mystery of Christ, the true identity of who Jesus is, the mission for which he has come, remains hidden from the wise, the Pharisees, and is revealed to little children, the disciples. You see, in chapter 12, the Pharisees, they witness a miracle, a sign from God. And then they turn around and accuse Jesus of working for Satan. And shortly thereafter, they ask Jesus, can you give us a sign? You see, they missed the sign, Jesus. Matthew tells us so in chapter 12. Follow along. How is Jesus the sign from God? He is greater than the temple, 12 verse 6, and offers greater intimacy with God than any structure or system ever could. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, 12 8, and offers true rest that Joshua could not offer his people. He is greater than Jonah, 12 41, a prophet who would go to hell and back to deliver the good news of salvation to his people, his enemies. He is greater than Solomon, 1242. He is the wisdom of God embodied. And when we understand him, we understand the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to the Pharisees. And this Jesus then says in Matthew eleven twenty eight thirty, 28, 30, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
And the disciples, the little children, have responded in faith. Unlike the Pharisees, the learned, the educated, they come humbly and they respond to this invitation and they sit at his feet and they are listening to Jesus in Matthew 12, 46 and following. Here is what I want you to hear, the people of God, the work that God has called you to do. More than the work of grace, which we often think about, and it, rightfully so because it is important. The work that is more important than that is the work of responding humbly to this invitation to come and find rest in Christ. This is the Father's will for you, that you would not simply carve out for yourself your own identity, your career, your future, that you would take matters into your own hands to become a person of destiny, to carve out some way here in the city to make a difference. No, Jesus says, no, come, find rest in me. This is God's will for you. Because as we learn to find true rest for our souls, then and only then can we grasp this grace that Paul makes much deal of in Ephesians chapter 2. So then we can, as we face the world and engage it, do so joyfully. Friends of God, Christ invites you even tonight to rest from trying to prove your worth. He invites you to rest from trying to offer your righteousness to him. He calls you to rest from trying to find purpose and meaning in your career, in your relationships. He calls you to find rest from trying to secure your future. He invites you to rest, to find contentment in him, not in things, not in what you can afford, opportunities you can see. He'll come and find rest in him, in Christ, our Savior, who loves you and cares for you deeply. And when we do, when we come humbly, we say, God, I can't can't do any of these things help me he is pleased he is pleased with you and he offers himself through his son and when we take the step of faith just even a small step james 4 8 says god sees that and he takes a giant step forward toward us if we draw near to him he will draw near to us. We see a beautiful picture of that. Again, the parable of the prodigal son. The son comes barely making his way home. And that's it. The father runs to embrace his son. Who has said yes to the invitation to find rest. And the father comes. So as God's people called into this family, called to live out grace in your workplace, in your relationships, before you do any of that, will you come now and find rest in him? Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for this invitation to come. Jesus, thank you for inviting us to come and to find rest for our souls. There's a lot going on in our lives. 
God of competing voices and thoughts that pull our hearts in every which way. And often we're tempted to give in, to pursue this or pursue that. But we know these things are all lies. The promises are all empty. Lord, give us gospel sanity to come to you now. Even as you invite us to this table, we ask in Jesus' name.